are tuned in to CFCR 90.5 FM. This is the Nerdy News and it's Punch Radio with Kathy and Tony and Brennan and Jody and Dave and Hank and Craig. There are a lot of us and uh, we all have some to add to the hearty brew. This week we are talking about uh, Sin City. We're talking about some new DC with Superman and House of L. And Dave and I are going to talk about a new movie that just premiered on Amazon Prime called Minari. So there's lots to stay tuned for. So we'll start things off. Tony, why are you so excited about uh, Frank Miller's Sin City all of a sudden? Well, you know, sometimes I just look at my trade paperbacks I have sitting in my closet and I just start looking through things. I start, you know, reading things that I haven't read in a long time. So I kind of pulled up my Sin City books uh, and I was a huge Sin City fan when it first came out. I bought all the books, started when it first came out in the Dark Horse for Sense books, and I loved it, and I followed it all the way through. And uh, you can't really talk about Sin City without talking about Frank Miller. I know that Frank Miller has a pretty pretty bad rap these days. Um, He's a bit of a whack job. Uh, He definitely, I don't know if he's always been a whack job, but I have a theory about Frank Miller. I think Frank Miller has always been a bit of a whack job, but no one knew about it until the internet. Because if you're a whack job and the internet all of a sudden says, hey, this is who he is. So before that, I think that Frank Miller was always a bit off. But he's, he's, he's off. And the stuff that he does now is, is crap. But if you think about the stuff that he did do, in 1980, his Batman stuff was awesome. He did the Spectacular Spider-Man stuff. He did a few issues of, uh, sorry, Spectacular Spider-Man 2728. Um, his Daredevil was kind of the beginning of his film noir style. Um, you know, he brought in Electra, was uh, a character that he brought in. Um, his Dark Knight Returns is definitely one of the best books that I've ever read. Even DK2, which people hate, I think if you read them both together, it's still a, a fascinating read. And I really like his stuff. And I've been, you know, his Ronin all the way up to, you know, like I said, the, the Dark Knight stuff. So I kind of sometimes I think about Frank Miller as to where he started. And you can kind of see he brings everything together with his Sin City books. He really, it's a very minimalist book. It's not, it's not written in the sense that you, that it takes, there's not a lot of words. Uh, it's very black and white. If you have never seen the Sin City books, it's basically black and white. There's no gray tones. There's no color except for when he wants to bring color out to a situation. Basically, he'll bring out color in the there's a lady in red, she wears red, uh, that yellow bastard, he is yellow, and so forth. And I think there's a couple other colors that he throws in there. But he doesn't use a lot of color, and he does it in such a way that it flows so well. It's very moody, the story is very simple, it's very gritty, uh, and it's black and white, and that's it. But what he does is he kind of changed it into a 3D uh, book because he uses a lot of the actual exaggerations of the the characters and he uses a lot of the exaggerations of just in in general even the actual word balloons become almost exaggerated in such a such a way that it really brings out the book to be a fabulous read and a great look um, this you know if you think about Sin City it's basically just a rundown city the cops are paid off there's car, uh, the prostitutes in Old Town are pretty much running all Old Town and, uh, you know, the mob stays out of Old Town because the, the prostitutes are running it. Um, and it's just all crime rate is high. 
and it's just basically as bad as it can be, but there's always that one person, that one person who is trying to do good. And that's what every issue or every story is like that one person that's trying to do good to save somebody else. And so as you read these, you kind of realize that, um, you know, the protagonist is always going to be there, but at the same time, you know, the bad things are, are really going to come down and, and, and beat that person down. There's one good thing about the book that I love, and that is Marv. Uh, a lot of people have probably seen the movies and Marv, the character of Marv was actually played by Mickey Rourke. Uh, I'm a huge Mickey Rourke fan from the 80s. And to see Mickey Rourke, he was like the perfect Marv. He was just, he's large man. Uh, he basically can beat up anybody. And he's not a good person by any means. And he's very, he takes a lot of drugs because his emotional level is, is very poor, to say the least. And uh, it, it, it's a great character. And he's in every, every book, but he's never the, the main guy except for the one book. The first book that came out, uh, he was the main one. Now, in the end, you kind of see how what happens to Marv at the end of the, um, uh, the hard goodbye. So when you already know like what his, how his story ends, but then all the books that come after it are always kind of like before the hard goodbye. So you're actually seeing things, you know, the, the prequels as to what happens to Marv. And he's in all these books and Marv is like, I think one of the best characters. Basically, he's just one of those people that you can, you see him and he represents kind of everything in a very noir that I see. Um, anyway, yeah, so I just, I don't know, I started thinking about it the other day, and it won so many awards. It won the Eisner Award in 93, Best uh, Writer, Best Penciler. It's just one of those books that he, that just kind of came and snuck up on me when I was younger, and I still can't believe how good it is. I love Sin City. How do you feel the movie stacks up? against the comic? Um, I like the fact that uh, Robert, Robert Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez, he's actually the director. Now he was actually, he brought in Frank Miller into as partial director. So they supposedly directed it together, uh, but he was pretty much frame for frame in a lot of it, which was pretty cool. But the thing about the movie is it's a movie. So you still have that the flow of it sometimes doesn't match the flow of the comics. Um, and the, the writing is very, you know, it's not really meant to be something that people say, you know, you can, you can read it, but you can't really, it's hard to say it. So a lot of the, a lot of the dialogue is pretty choppy as far as, um, the movie goes, I, I thought anyway, but it was good. Like I said, uh, Robert Rodriguez did a good job. The second one was awesome too. So he did the two movies and, uh, yeah, Mickey Rourke was awesome in both of them. I sort of felt like I, I liked the movie. I didn't expect that I would like the movie. But I feel like, like when you're reading the comic, it feels like a movie. And when you're watching the movie, it feels like a comic. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, like I said, it's, um, I remember buying the DVD for it. And the DVD actually, the, for, for the Hard Goodbye, the, the movie was based on the Hard Goodbye. It actually had the graphic novel in the DVD. So I actually bought this DVD and it had the graphic novel, which I already owned. But I thought it's so good for someone who actually buys a movie and they can say, hey, where did this come from? And they can actually like look at the actual the book. So it was really good that they were actually trying to bring it together. Bringing Frank Miller into it to help out with the movie made it probably a better movie as well. Hmm. Okay. Can I ask you a question about sure. Frank, Frank Miller and the sure. thing? So uh, he lived in New York, right? I don't know. Did he? You don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I thought 
that he was from New York. Like he always portrays New York as being yeah. so bad, oh, like so dark yeah. and so bad. Like why did he, you know, I just always thought, yeah. why did he not move? Like what? Seems like he doesn't like New York. He always makes it so horrible. You always hear people talking about how they hate where they are, but they stay. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's my, that's my take on Sin City today. Okay, thank you for that. We'll uh, pull that off of the shelf and give that a reread because it's definitely worth it. Okay, let's turn to something new on the shelf. Brennan, you're still deeply diving into all of the DC uh, future state stuff. What's new on that palette? So like I said, I was not expecting to do this big deep dive, but I have been, and I haven't even got to all of it. I've been picking the things I thought would be the most interesting. this week, I'm talking about Superman. So out of all the characters, um, looking back at my collection, Superman and Batman have always been at the top of my list. I actually forgot how much I read Batman until recently reorganizing my comics. Uh, but Superman, I've been buying since 1986 when John Byrne revamped it, and I've been following it ever since. So there's always a big part of my heart that goes towards Superman. So I went with Superman Wars, Worlds of War, number one and two. Uh, And this follows the disappearance of Superman. So apparently Superman right now is not on Earth and people are wondering what happened to him. So it starts off in this future where in Smallville they're having this sort of uh, memorial festival almost where the writings of Superman have almost become like religion. There's people reading off his high school chemistry exam saying this is the lost scripture of Clark Kent and this sort of thing. And... We've been told that he's officially announced Clark Kent has said, oh, I'm Superman, like what happened in the actual comic, but now he's gone. And so people are speculating what happened to him. And we have all these fans talking about what Superman meant to them and and why he was important. And some people say, well, it's because he was the strongest, most powerful. And one person says, no, it's because he never quit. He was the best of what we could be. So there's a lot of this conversation about what he means, what he was as a symbol, at the same time, it turns out Superman is actually on War World, and he is there fighting some of Mongol's warriors, but he's under a red sun, so he has no power, but Clark Kent, aka Superman, is decked out sort of like Conan, so he's got this big S armor and a big shield and a big sword, and he's there to fight on War World, and that's how issue one ends. We then have side stories with Mr. Miracle, uh, who also appears in War World and is trying to figure out what's going on there. We have Midnighter, who is off trying to find some power source. And then Black Racer shows up in the fourth story. So, and all these stories seem to circulate around War World in, in different kind of ways. Um, in issue two, we discover kind of more what's, what's happening. So in the, the Superman story, it's very much Superman was the, the inspiration. Like he wasn't just because he was powerful, it was because he would never quit. He always stood up for the small person and that's why he's, he's important to us. We learn more about what might be coming up in uh, future DC comics per se is what's happening with these characters. Uh, the Black Racer has been recast as still like the new God Sergeant Agent of Death, but might be more heroic than we thought. Midnighter, and I never read much of The Authority. Um, again, all the Wildstorm stuff I wasn't into when it came out, but there's some big ties in with Midnighter and Apollo and The Authority and the fact that Midnighter might be working with the Justice League. So I think they're kind of hinting that The Authority might make a bigger 
DC impact uh, into the new series of the universe. So we're, the, the thread throughout all these stories is that Superman is doing what he does best, which is um, not just a symbol of might and strength, but of, of hope and endurance. And then when we look at the House of L, so the House of L being uh, Superman's bloodline in, in different ways. So we have cousins and offshoots and relatives, and uh, they have a base on the moon, I believe. If I'm, yes. Huh. Look at me remembering. Earth's moon at the Fortress of Sanctuary. And there's uh, a big threat coming. It's the Red King, which, if memory serves, is also the big uh, red force that was going through Green Lantern in the future state. And so uh, the Red King shows up on the moon, and House of Al is like, we're going to stop it. And a big battle happens, and people die. And they're like, ah, what's going on? And people are questioning, was Superman even a real person? Like, is Kal-El a person or just the symbol? Was he even real? And then things happen at the end. It's kind of spoiled by the cover. But uh, we learned that the House of Val does actually have connections and Superman was a man and he might make an appearance as an old man at the end. So there you go. Uh, the idea of Superman as a symbol is alive and well still in the future state comics. So even though Wonder Woman seems to be the next guided force, it's still the heart of Superman that's going to keep um, everything going. So yeah, it's, it's been good. It's yay future state. Who knew? Who knew, DC? Well done. Awesome. Well, there's a bunch of new stuff that comes out, came out on Wednesday and will continue to come out throughout March for DC. So we'll look forward to hearing more about that. Okay, we're going to take a little break, throw things over to Hank and Craig, and then Dave and I are going to talk about Minari. Hey, everybody. Craig Sillifant here uh, with my good buddy Hank Cruz on Punch Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM. And uh, we've got some uh, we've got some fun TV and other stuff for you today. So uh, let's start out with Hank. What do you uh, what do you got going over there? Well, I thought that we were going to start this by talking about the Golden Globe Awards, but uh, I fell asleep because they were so boring. that There's yeah. nothing to talk about. Like <laughs> waste waste of time but i did start watching a new show called Ginny and georgia on netflix uh which i should be done by next week so we'll talk about that next week uh but this week it's not not too often that i stumble upon something that i missed when it actually was released but finding dion uh sorry raising dion on netflix uh came out in 2019 and for some weird reason i guess i the netflix didn't want me to watch it it didn't appear anywhere, but I should have watched it. But a widowed single mom discovers that her eight-year-old son has superpowers, and she tries to figure out how to deal with that. And as the plot progresses, we find out that Dion isn't the only one with powers, tracing the source of the soups back to a meteor shower in Iceland, where it just so happens that Dion's father was doing some research. What? the company he, he worked for is obviously like a subsidiary of the dharma initiative or WexCorp or some other evil organization and this whole thing there's like this crooked man in there and diseased foxes and raising dion is a little bit of lost mixed with the first season heroes with a dash of saturday morning cartoons a little bit of a fishing show and a few secret ingredients and there's episodes titled Fortress of Solitude, Super Friends, You Won't Like Him When He's Angry, Days of Mark's Future Past. Uh, they've also got child actors in this show uh, that pull their own weight. Uh, like, awesome. How can you go wrong? Uh, my wife, uh, my kidlets and I, we all watched it together. We all enjoyed it. The pacing was a little off. Uh, there were some secondary plot points that were wasted, 
but I was surprised a couple times, which uh, doesn't usually happen. Now, I would say that uh, Mike Fisher, the other half of at Fisher Cruise, he knew what was up long before I did, but uh, he still enjoyed it. It's a solid 81 out of 100. Season two has been greenlit. I don't know if it's been shot yet or not, but uh, it is a fun superhero uh, show for the family. That's uh, borderline too dark for the kids. So uh, pretty good. You should check it out. Raising Dion. Yeah, I, I noticed that one pop up too recently. And I wonder if it wasn't released in 2019. Maybe it was made in 2019 and didn't get released for some reason. But because I just saw that one pop up too. And I'd never heard of it before either. So that's weird. But sounds interesting. I'll, I'll check that one out for sure. That's good. Uh, it, uh, it didn't give anybody nightmares. But I was worried that my son was going to have a hard time falling asleep. So there was some scary stuff in there. Maybe I'll watch it by myself then, because my son's prone to some of that too. Uh, so uh, I saw a few things, uh, but I've been watching. I'm not uh, finished it yet, but I'm watching The Staircase right now on Netflix. So uh, if you don't know what that is, it's the. It was actually originally a like a French and BBC miniseries uh, documenting the trial of Michael Peterson, who is a very famous novelist who was charged with murdering his wife. He claimed she fell down a set of stairs. Uh, you know, the prosecution claimed that he murdered her, basically. Uh, and if you remember this case, this isn't really a spoiler because it was like a big case. It sort of came out during the trial that this wasn't the first time this had happened to him. Like 20 years ago or something like that, another woman had fallen down the stairs and died in a similar manner. And uh, he'd actually like adopted her kids and stuff. Like they were just friends. It wasn't, they weren't married or anything. So the, at first, like my wife and I were watching it and it was like, okay, this is, they're really dragging this out too long. Cause I've heard this story before in podcasts and stuff. And I've heard it told well in an hour podcast. This is like a 12 or 13 episode series. Uh, and so like, you know, by the second episode, we were like, what is going on here? There's just like, you're just right in the minutia of it. But really what it is, is you're in the middle of this like court case. The access is amazing. Like they've obviously had some kind of agreement with the family where they were literally like in the house while they're discussing all this stuff and, and like strategizing the case and same with the lawyers. And then obviously courtroom scenes and stuff like that, archival footage. So it's really meticulously put together sometimes in a way that's like, okay, like this isn't fast and lurid enough for me, but like, if you do enjoy that, like really deep dive into how like court cases and stuff work, uh, it's like, it's really well done in that sense. So we'll see where it goes. I actually just kind of spoiled it for myself uh, looking up the background of it, but I mean, it was obviously a big case anyway. Uh, I've also been watching and I'm not quite finished this one either, but uh, this one's from actually, I think I want to say 2019, Too Old to Die Young uh, from uh, one of my like, favorite directors Nicholas Winding Refn he did like Drive and uh, films like that so really like stylish uh, director and it stars Miles Teller as a detective in LA basically who's also a hitman like he's kind of a crooked cop sort of by circumstances uh, he's got a teenage girlfriend who is the uh, uh, Tiger Nell the actress that plays Leanne in The Servant and uh, her crazy father uh, I think it's Stephen Baldwin uh, and then there's also these other characters that are like Mexican cartel characters that, you know, they're all sort of offset against each other. And uh, this isn't going to be for everybody, but it's basically, I've heard it called slow cinema and it's definitely slow uh, and not in the ways that like, you know, not in a way that's like detrimental to it. If you enjoy that kind of thing, uh, it just takes its time in a big way. It's quiet. It has really cool music, a score by Cliff Martinez, who often scores uh, uh, reference stuff. And uh, it's just like a cool, like if you thought like drive was cool, 
this movie is in that vein. It's super cool, really crimey and violent, uh, but like, you know, uh, really thoughtful and, and smart too. So uh, sometimes ri ridiculous at the same time, but, uh, but just if you like this kind of thing, it's worth watching. If you don't like that kind of thing, it'll be too slow for you. I uh, completely forgot. Um, I have watched this and it just occurred to me now, Jody told me to watch it. Uh, Ed Brubaker is yes. one of the writers. And that's why I'm like, I love Ed Brubaker. So you go and check this out. Yes, definitely. I love this. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Ed Brubaker, for anybody that doesn't know, is a comic book writer and cartoonist. Uh, and so he writes a lot of awesome stuff. And so again, if you like Refn and Brubaker's work, uh, you'll like this. So uh, we've got maybe about a half a minute left. And I just want to quickly mention Framing Britney Spears, which is on Crave, which free I know. Britney. Hashtag, hashtag free Britney. Britney, which I know both of us have watched. Uh, interesting story about the conservatorship that she's been living under since 2008, which means her father has control of all her money and her person. So basically the kind of thing you put into place for like an old person that is sort of, you know, suffering from dementia or something to make sure that they, you know, don't spend all their money on, uh, you know, Dr. Ho's medicine or swizzle sticks or whatever people like to buy. Uh, One of my favorite things. Yeah, what? exactly. Yeah. I don't know where I got those from, but, uh, and so I would say like, it's interesting, but ultimately like it's very surface. They don't get the, like all the, all the uh, access that I was talking about with the staircase, you get none of that with uh, uh, framing Britney Spears. I think it was um, produced by like the New York times. Uh, and so it's sort of weird that like, they don't really, you know, have that kind of access. Gets into stuff like the paparazzi and stuff, though, and ultimately doesn't really have an ending because the story hasn't ended. So it's also like, why did they release this now instead of waiting until there was more resolution to some of these things? But uh, very quickly, in about 10 seconds, what did you think? It was an hour and 15 minutes long. 15 minutes of those were worth watching. That's my thought. Right, there you go. So uh, that one's on Crave, Framing Britney Spears. And uh, that's it for me and Hank. We're going to throw back to Jody. So we'll talk to you next week on Punch Radio. All right. Thank you, fellas. Okay. So last Friday, I got a text from superstar Sean Karpinka, who was like, you should watch Minari. It's fresh out that day on Amazon Prime. And he said he thought we would really like it. And he was right. Um, it is a charming little story. It's uh, a very American story. It is about a Korean family who come to America, to Arkansas, to start farming. And it's, yeah, a, ch a charming little piece. Yeah, I, um, it's also an 80s movie. Um, even though that is quite subtly conveyed, maybe even a late 70s movie, but it creeps up on you. You see this station wagon that they're driving that tells you either these people have a really old station wagon or we're back in the past a few decades. And then there's this moment where you see a glass one liter bottle of Mountain Dew. And um, yeah, if you're, if you're 40 plus years old and you see that bottle, you know we're in a, a pretty sweet window of time. Yeah, well, and I think they mentioned at some point that Reagan is in office. Yeah, so that, that helps place it timeline. Uh, basically, yeah, they come to, um, to America. They're working kind of crummy jobs, uh, identifying the genders of, of chickens in a factory. And they finally save up enough money so that they can buy a farm in Arkansas because they want to grow Korean food. 
And so they come to this farm and it's hard work and things don't always go the way that they think they're going to go. They have a son who has a heart condition, so they have to be really careful about that. Um, the woman who plays the wife in this is fantastic. She, with no words, she conveys just like how, how unhappy she is to be there, how things are just like totally not working out at all. And also kind of how the father has like wrangled the family to Arkansas with promises of all this great stuff they're going to have and prosperity. And of course, when they arrive, the beginnings are kind of humble and the conflict and the challenge and the uprising all kind of starts from there. It is basically an, an agricultural story. It, it so is. There's a lot of prairie people that are going to relate to Minari. Yeah. Um, now, Minari is actually the name of a crop. Uh, it's, it's a leafy sort of, it's called Chinese celery, sometimes Japanese parsley or water dropwort, and it will kind of grow anywhere. In Korea, it has uh, three crops over the course of a year. So it's very prolific um, and you can grow it in many different conditions. So it's kind of a metaphor for the um, Korean immigrant experience and just how hardy it is and how they can adapt and, and grow and thrive just about anywhere. And it, it is a really sweet movie. Yeah, nice quick runtime, very modest budget. Um, a few actors in the lead roles that, that you might recognize from some other Korean films, but really probably a movie that like you want to get in soon. Right. Um, before, you know, potentially like award season and stuff like that gets like th this seems like it's going to be one of those movies um that's going to have a, a lot of buzz i can't remember the lead actor's name uh, right it's now, steven but, wen and yeah. he's from he's glenn from the walking dead so if you're a fan of the walking dead you will recognize him from there um he was also in the burning and really great in that so some solid performances and just a feel good movie. Like yep. it's just, it's nice. There's, and there's tension. There's lots of like, oh, everything's going to go wrong. But then it sort of, it, it has a roller coaster ride that is well worth the ticket. Yeah. And great performances by two really young kids. I'm going to say a, a boy of about four or five and a girl of about nine or 10. And uh, man, they're really good. They're really good. Yeah. Totally believable. So check out Minari on Amazon Prime. All right, that wraps up another episode of Punch Radio. Uh, you'll find us here again next Friday at six o'clock. And in the meantime, keep your dukes up. <laughs>